That Stack of Books. I'm Steve Scher. I'm Nancy Pearl. And a room full of people <laughs> to discuss books. Books that you're afraid of uh, reading a second time a little later. But first, Nancy, these are a couple of new novels. These oh. are, yes, these are. Novel and stories. Correct. These are brand new, just published recently um, in 2015. The first one that I want to talk about is uh, called Vanessa and Her Sister. And I'm not an expert in the Bloomsbury group. Um, you know, I've read Virginia Woolf. I, I know a lot of little stuff about it, but there's no way that I'm an expert. But Vanessa. I'm sorry, you're not an expert in a literary group in the, at the, at the, oh, uh, no, from the right. past? That just doesn't seem right. No, I'm, I have to be honest. I'm not. But this book gave me what little I what little I've read and understand about Virginia Woolf is that um, it, 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 we get a particular picture of her, this tortured genius who um, ended up killing herself by walking into the river with stones in her pocket, um, married to. Did you not know that, Katie? Oh, okay. Well, she did, after writing some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, novels. So Vanessa and her sister is told from the point of view of Virginia Woolf's sister, Vanessa, who is, um, is a painter. And I was saying to somebody, what I loved about this book is that Virginia Woolf, of the two sisters, Virginia Woolf is the one who's known. Vanessa Woolf is known to you know a much smaller group of people who are more interested in the art world. I mean, she was a, a painter, and, and and this person said to me, well, that's because one was merely talented and the other was a genius. And after reading this book, I, I, I when he said that to me, I, it was like a knife in my heart. I mean, I felt like I had to jump to Vanessa Wolf's um, uh, you know, defense, because in this book, I mean, this is a book from her point of view, it's made up journals that she, you know, that she wrote, but it's interspersed with the Twitter of the day telegrams um, among this group of friends. You know, remember mail was delivered several times a day in London at that time. And it just gives a picture of Virginia Woolf that we, that we haven't seen. And I just so love this book. I just loved this book, and I loved everything about it, from the wonderful cover to everything that's in it. It's a wonderful novel. Made up, made up journals, but yes. is there some historical uh -huh. basis in some of the things we're hearing? Yes, yes. I mean, she did a lot of research in this, worked with um, one of Virginia and Vanessa Wolf's descendants, a woman, and so there's a lot in here that is based on real people and real life. Um, you know, uh, the other person who Virginia Woolf is um, intimately, intimately um, uh, a part of, of his life was her husband, Leonard Woolf. And no one these days, or very, very, very few people, I've never met anyone who's read Leonard Woolf's journals. And he had a fascinating life as well. He was with the Foreign Service, spent a lot of time um, abroad and just a fascinating man who came home and married Virginia Woolf and was they started a publishing company. So he was well known in his day, right? For that purpose, right? For yes. that reason. Yes, he was very well known. But nowadays, I mean, he left, you know, um, years ago, somebody published his five, five volumes, I think, of his journals. And they're just, if you're into journals, which a lot of people are, they're really wonderful. One was merely talented and the other one was a genius. Wow, that's, that can step you short. 
it, it can, and anyone with a sister can probably, you know, easily <laughs> identify, including me. <laughs> Vanessa and her sister by Priya Parmar, or Parmar, who's, who divided her time between Hawaii and London, I noticed, <laughs> to write that book. Right. Bummer for her. And then this other, the short stories? So this is a collection of short stories called Single Carefree Mellow by a woman named Catherine Heine, H-E-I-N-Y. I think that's how it's pronounced. Maybe Heine. Um, and I lo- this is another collection, uh, another work of fiction that I absolutely loved. And what I loved about these is the voice of the narrators in all of these different stories. And... Uh, they're, they're young women, they're certainly, most, most of them are single, all of them are single, very few of them are carefree and none of them are mellow. And it's a brilliant, brilliant title, Single Carefree Mellow. I just, I, I love these short stories and I love the voices. Now the thing with this collection and I think any other collection of short stories by one author is that you really should not read them as though it, it was a novel. Because, you know, you really need to read, especially with these stories, I think, especially but not exclusively with these stories, read a story, put it down, let two or three days pass, and then come back and read the second story and so on. Because you don't want to get into that place, because the stories should be cherished, they're so wonderful, but you don't want to get into that place where every narrator sounds like every other narrator and everything blurs together. So that would be my um, little one bit of advice. I see Lena Dunham wrote the blurb on the front. So, no, that's good. That means that the the folks who like girls are going to be looking for this book. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, I'm probably the totally wrong demographic to read this book uh, and to enjoy this book, but I absolutely loved it. But someone else who blurbed this book is Stephen McCauley, an author that I just, he hasn't written anything for a long time now, um, but his his second book, I think, um, was the book of his that I absolutely loved. And, um, you know, he and if he loved it, I think that's great. You know, um, Perhaps this podcast is restoring your energy for new fiction. You know, it is because remember last year was such a downer. I couldn't find anything to read. I was grumping around like, and now I just am finding a lot of stuff that I love. I got to say, that's actually one of the reasons I quit KUOW because we just couldn't make Nancy happy anymore. (laughs) I was pretty unhappy. Uh, those sound like two good books. I, I'm reading two books that sort of uh, dovetail into some of our conversations we've been having. But who was the short story writer from the Iraq War who won the uh, did he win the National Book Award or the Pulitzer? Yeah, Phil Clay for the book Redeployment. So I interviewed this week the author of The Evil Hours, a biography of PTSD, David Morris, and. Um, Phil Clay was somebody that was very important to him in writing the book, his, his research. This was a book that was all about how we came to see this syndrome, how we used to talk about the various things we called it, and all the way up to today where we have this syndrome and it's been psychoanalyzed and put into the, into the main books of psychoanalysis to understand it. His thesis was the best way to understand this, this, what's happening to people and maybe the best cure for it is literature. 
is to look back at Ulysses and uh, to look back at the Odyssey, to look back. The Evil Hours is a quote from Siegfried Sassoon, a guy you guys have talked about a lot. Hemingway looked at Mailer, looked at Phil Clay, said that for him anyways, in the end, the best way to deal with the disease, which he did not call a disease, said it's post-traumatic stress, I'm dealing with it, I think diseaseifying it is, is, a, is a problem, was to use literature as the, as the tool. And I thought that was fascinating in terms of especially some of the things that, that Robin and all you guys have talked about over the past few weeks. In the library world, there used to be a field called um, bibliotherapy. I mean, actually, librarians used to, you know, really do that, you know, and... Uh, and I think to some extent we still do, but we certainly don't formalize it anymore quite that way. But I think that books can help you get through difficult times, not, not necessarily because the person or people that you're reading about share your experience, you, you know, beat for beat, but because they, in a, in a funny way, get you out of where, not a funny way, they get you out of where your head is at the moment and allow you to live in a different world for that amount of time and and I can see I mean I think it I think reading about somebody who's depressed like Virginia Woolf was for much of her much of her life I don't think that will help a depressed person but I think that um, I, I think so it's not therapy in that kind of way, but I think that that reading in general just opens so many doors for us, don't you think? The other book I'm reading is for a, a talk later is uh, David Axelrod, new book, Believer, and uh, some revelations have already come from the book about, but small revelations about how he how he and Obama talked about same-sex marriage and how they dealt with Valerie Jarrett and what they think about. Joe Biden, but what I'm what I'm finding so far is that it raises more questions for me about the decisions that they made to pursue bipartisanship when it was obvious that it was failing. And he touches on this a little bit. I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but he touches on it in the early parts. But he uh, he is the believer. He still believes that 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 was the best way for them to approach their political uh, win. But he also says that they saw they had two years, and that's why they did everything they did, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead with all the things they went for, which I thought was, it was fascinating to hear that justification again, what, eight years, six years later, of why they pursued health care, why they did the TARP, why they did the auto bailout. So it's a pretty good book. He was a journalist, so it shows. Well, I, I, does he talk at all about, or you're going to interview him, right? Well, I mean, I, I, what about what about this administration's um, sort of war on the media? Because it seems certainly seems from James Risen from the New Yorker on, that's an issue. They, that is an issue, and they have clamped down on, well, overtly, right? They've clamped down on any leaks and tried to prosecute people, but then, but then in more subtle ways, they've had a war on the media in terms of just how they've treated certain certain reporters yeah. and certain information. All right, that's on my list. Okay. All right, so okay. s some good books to think about at that stack of books. Yeah. Nancy Pearl, you were thinking about books that maybe people want to reread but are fearful of rereading them. Yes. Because they may not be very good in the rereading. Yes, and I, 
I call those books books that are better remembered than reread. And I and I, I came up with that because I've certainly had that experience in in my life. And the book that always makes me think of that is a novel called The Movie Goer by Walker Percy, which won, I believe, won the first National Book Award um, in the 1960s. And when I read this book, I, I like totally identified with the main female character. I, I mean, I loved this book from start to finish. He's a wonderful writer. This was, I think, his first novel. It was amazing. The moviegoer was so good, and then I assigned it to my to the class. Uh, the cl- one semester I assigned it to a class I teach at um, in the information school at at the at the University of Washington, and it, it was the only every year we we all read one book together and discuss it. And this and every year every every semester there's somebody who doesn't like the book or more than one person. In this class, everybody hated the book and the awful thing was when I reread it I had no idea why I liked this book I had no connection with the characters they seemed a little bit I they just didn't that I just couldn't the only way to say it is I couldn't connect to them and so the students said Nancy why did you choose this book what you know why choose this book and I thought and I said to them, I have no idea why I chose this book. And that just was so depressing. It was incredibly depressing because I had to take this book off. My, I think I gave it away. I don't think I even own it anymore. See, that just frightens me because there are a lot of books I love that I'm afraid to go back to now. I was thinking about that question last night. And I was thinking there's a book that I thought changed me when I was in college, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Now I'm afraid if I go back, I'll just find it somewhat, I don't know, overwritten, distraught. What, what? Pedestrian. <laughs> so does anybody else have that? Do you have that, Claire? Do you have that book that you no, would rather mis, uh, misremember than misread? <laughs> no, last week I had told the story of trying to reread Sophie's Choice, and the language of it, I can't even get, I can't get past 20 or 30 pages, so I'm not going to. But the book that comes to mind that I did reread, um, it must have been the early 80s. I read Lonesome Creek on a vacation on a boat. No, Lonesome Dove. Lonesome Dove. And part, you know, partly I think it was because of vacation and all, but I loved that book. And I think it was the early 80s. And one of the main characters, not the guys, but of the women, is named Clara. And maybe five years ago, I reread the book. I still loved it, but I, Clara, was night and day. I mean, I was in my 20s when I first read Clara, and then I was in my 50s when I read Clara, and she was a three-dimensional character in a way that I completely missed. She was a plot device the first time I read it. In your head? Yeah, you know, she was, uh, it, it just, it didn't mean the same thing to me as it did reading it, you know, by the time I was older. That sounds like an improvement, though. Yeah, yeah, that was maybe a fluke. <laughs> Now, Betsy, when, when Nancy said that about misreading, you had a look on your face like, 
that had never happened to you? Have you ever gone back to a book? Willa Cather's My Antonia, which I read decades ago, and I picked it up in January, um, and I started to read it, and I, and I was startled because I loved this book. I love the, um, her, her language, she's very poetic, she speaks of the landscape, and then I realized the landscape of Nebraska was no longer my inner, you know, that wasn't my landscape anymore. And, um, and so I just didn't want to read it. That was it. So oh, it wasn't, it wasn't talking. I was hoping that it was like your inner landscape. Well, it was my inner landscape. That's exactly why I used that word, because I think at the time I was going through a whole transition, and I loved the book. When I picked it up this time, I realized this is not my inner landscape. This is not, I am not the same person who read this book. Yeah, the book doesn't necessarily change, right? I mean, it's still the same words and the same paragraphing and all of that, but I mean, that's why in a way there's no such thing as rereading, because every time we come back to a book, we are a different person from who we were when we first read the book. And I think that's a, I mean, I, I, to me that's very profound. I think it says something about change and I, I don't think it's age, really. I think it's just where, well, not age specifically, but where we are in our life. Yeah. But Steve, Tink, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek still speaks to all of the things that you're interested in. I know. That's why I'm afraid. <laughs> That's why you've got me nervous. But what about Refuge, Terry Tempest Williams? Has anybody yeah. read that? You, you yeah. loved that, yeah. I bet. I love that. She yeah. was great, and she was a fascinating writer. Michael, have you have, do you have experience like that? A book that you uh, have reread and was different for you? I never reread re re stuff. Right? There are just there are too many books out there to read for the first time. So going back over you know old territory just doesn't interest me much. So. I'm a little bit like that. What do you think about that? No, I, it's, it's a big decision to reread because you do give up the opportunity to find something new. Why do you choose to reread? I certainly don't reread as much now as I used to, but I, I think there are some books that are like comfort books. There's a periods in, in one's life where you just don't want to invest everything in, in dealing with a new book. I mean, I think it's why the same thing about um, not new experiences either. You just want the familiar... You know, I just want an Agatha Christie novel that I know basically what's going to happen rather than taking on something that might be more challenging than I'm in the mood for. Well, the only thing I can think of was a rather epic quest because I decided I was going to try to find a book that when I was a elementary schooler I was reading and rereading and rereading, but I didn't know its title, and I just thought I would recognize it when I found it. Um, so I used to go to Goodwill and just look for what would I have been attracted to. Um, and then after a decade of doing this, just sort of when I was waiting for somebody, I found it. I, I, I just knew it was the right one. It was called Shadow Castle. Because castle in the title, recognize the cover, that sort of thing. And I bought it. And let me tell you, it was terrible. Of course it was terrible, right? 
but um, just a horrible story. Boring, poorly written, great pictures though. I could stand by the illustrations. I, I sometimes will reread little bits of Freddy the Pig by Walter R. Brooks, and they're not as good as I had remembered, but I still do enjoy them. <laughs> this was like a first reader kind of book, you know, chapter book uh, of sorts, but, but you know, I'm still inclined to reread it. Because I, I think in my head, I see it on the shelf, and I said, well, it can't be that bad. But well, I shouldn't. I have a, a project now of um, going to reprint 12 of my favorite children's books, mostly from the 70s and 80s when I was a ch working as a children's librarian, but some even earlier. And so in the process, I've had to reread <laughs> a, lot of ch a lot of children's books. But um, some of them do absolutely, they don't, you know, they're not dated. They, they, I mean, you don't have the same relationship you had when you were a kid with them, or even when I was like recommending them to children to read. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. Another episode, I would like to hear about the years of Nancy Pearl as a children's librarian. I, I'm curious about that. Robin, have you had that experience, a book that you've uh, reread and had a different feeling for? I'm a little bit like Michael because I don't go back and reread novels too much, at least. I do go back to nonfiction books and look things up and I was trying to think. But I found this novel I read. I read this as an adult, but it was about 25 years ago. And... Uh, this is three novellas in this book, but I read The Notebook. Uh, they were published separately. It's by Agatha Kristoff, who's a native of Hungary, but she fled uh, Hungary in the 1950s, moved to Switzerland and writes in French. And The Notebook should not be confused with Nicholas Sparks' The Notebook, because this is a much different story, and it deals with... Uh, one critic describes it as a fractured fairy tale and it deals with these two boys who go from big town which is being bombed probably during World War II to little town to live with their grandmother and their Was it different in rereading? Did, did something different happen? Well I came back to it and I think it's still really powerful. I was expecting that this would probably sound uh, lame by now but I think this is uh, it's, uh, it's still devastating. I, I, it's probably not a book for the faint of heart. The moviegoer, did you read the moviegoer when you were like in your 20s? I think I, think I was 18 or 19, maybe in my tw early, early, early 20s. I was very different. <laughs> I have to go back and look at it now because that was one of those books that were assigned to us and I think it was uh, junior English at the University of Oregon. That was one of the pinnacle books in Handy's class. He said, oh, you gotta read this. Have you had books that you have read, Jenny, that you're not so sure about? You know, I avoid that by um, actually knowing very clearly what I do want to reread. For example, this is a David Spaulding who wrote a series called Life and Teaching of the Masters of the Far East. And I read this over and over, and if you look at it, you're looking to like, there's pen marks and highlights every time, because every time I read it, I get something else from it. And it was this guy who had a very scientific, intellectual mind, and he went and studied these kind of guru types. This is in like the turn of the century, 1800s, early 1900s. And I keep reading it over and over because I know I'm going to see the words or hear the words in a different way, and it's going to help my growth because I am devoted to growing. And so any book that I know is going to help me keep growing, I'll go back to it. But I've also found, with a caveat, that even then, after the 10th read, 
literally. There, there comes a point where, you know, the saturation point and then I need to put it down. The other one time that I would reread is um, this woman's series, Diana Gabaldon. She had the Outlander series and you may, some of you may have seen it on TV, the start of it. Because these books are so thick that sometimes I'll put it down for a year and I won't finish it. And by the time I get back to it, I have to read the previous three books, also this long, to get brought back to speed. So I've learned to put notes in the front so I can look in the front of the book and never have to reread them again. I'll tell you what I did reread over and over again. Every time a new Harry Potter book came out, I reread up to that point. And it held up every single time. I think she's a genius. I, I have, and remember you and I talked about it when, when I got it from England the first time before yeah. it was out here. Yeah. Well, I hope her sister's just mildly talented then. Do you ever have books, Keith, that you've reread? Um, haven't reread on purpose for myself, but I think kind of what Nancy was talking about with children, as my children have been getting older, I've been rereading in advance of them things that I might say hey I'd like for them to read and one of the ones that um, I know is kind of interesting was trying to get ahead of the movies was rereading the Lord of the Rings for them and that was something I won't say I was disappointed but it's very I I used to I think I first read them in high school and then I sort of re-encountered them about five years reread them again in five-year intervals, and every time it would be a little bit different. The character, I'd get different things about it. Some were more disappointing, some were more enjoyable. Sometimes I realized the writing was better than I thought it was. Sometimes I realized the characters were less interesting than I thought they were. And I was trying to get, re-experience them so that I could have my kids read them ahead of seeing the movies and being, having that be their only thought of them. And so that was the last reread about a decade ago. I think you, you actually, there's so many philosophical and sort of mental things when, when you ask this question. I find it fascinating. Like, just that notion of, you know, sometimes we've created the characters much more vividly than the, than the author had. It's, it's, it's a very, it's actually a very kind of problematic question. Yeah, I was just thinking what, what you said, Keith. I was reading out loud um, to, to my granddaughter, The Little House on the Prairie, the second book in the Little House series. And, of course, when I read them originally, I wasn't. Um, I, 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 we weren't aware of the, of the, of the, of the treatment of, of Native Americans in that book as as we are now. I mean, we weren't, it didn't register. It certainly didn't register for me when I first read them. But when I was reading it out loud to Emily, I, I, I was just, um, you know, my, I wanted to censor that part. I didn't want to read that part. I, I just felt, oh my gosh, you know, does this ruin the book? I mean, the, the author, Michael Doris, who is Native American, would not let his children read that series because of that aspect of it and and it really made me uncomfortable to read it now does that take away I mean that's a I mean I think that's a a big philosophical question what do you do with books that that were reflective of the period in which they were written yeah did you find any books that you decided I'm not I read them I liked them but now I'm not going to read them to my kids uh there was one that I didn't um 
It was the Hitchhiker's Guide series, and that was something I was waiting for a little bit longer. And the reason I didn't like it as much the second time around was I think that type of comedy is hard to reread when you know what's happening. You, it's, it's the sort of thing that's, that works well when it's... So I didn't enjoy it as much, and I just couldn't get them in, uh, interested in that. So but but the, what you were saying about the, the um, Little House book, I know that I had a very different experience... I, uh, waiting and coming back to Huck Finn than I did when it was assigned to me in high school for almost precisely the same reason when it was you know sort of like the book that we had to read in class versus something that I chose to read later. Question for Nancy too and you kind of touched on this I think but books that we read when we were younger like these uh, um, what was I trying to think of oh you know the books like Tess of the D'Urbervilles that are assigned in high school and maybe they're books we come back to and you finally understand what the author was getting at or you know you didn't really understand them the first time so sort of the opposite books that we've reread that were assigned that we really didn't get when we were younger yeah totally I think that's a, a common experience um, I, because I don't think I mean one of the questions that people parents always say is should I let my child read this book and my my response has always been a child gets out of a book just what they're what they're able to get I, I mean things are things go over your head when you're reading them and and you're not emotionally at that age so it's never it's never I I, I would never put limits on what somebody reads they're not going to find out things in there and I say this even though when I was 14 I think I had to go to a drugstore <laughs> to get a copy of Peyton Place <laughs> because, because I knew my mother, my parents would probably be, you know, not happy about that. Yeah. And, and, in, and in retrospect, they were right. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I know, I learned from Peyton Place. <laughs> but, but I don't think you should, I mean, we should, this is something that we, people struggle with all the time what their children are ready for. Well, their children are ready for whatever they're ready for, they will get out of the book that they're reading and nothing more. All right. Anybody have any books that they're reading this week that they think we should be, you know, that they want to share with us that you're checking out? I read an advanced reader copy, The Long and Far Away Gone. I absolutely could not put that book down. It was about two crimes that happened in the 80s that were unsolved and it jumped back and forth from the 80s to now with two people who were involved in those crimes but were trying to find the answer to what actually happened. And so the entire book you're thinking, what happened? What actually happened? The whole way through and I loaned it to a friend but I was reluctant to give it to her, you know. I, I know she's going to love it but it was that kind of book where you just want to... Hold on to it. Lou Bernie, B-E-R-N-E-Y. There you go. It's, it's gotten some very favorable reviews. And it's a novel. We should say that. You can find us at thatstackofbooks.com, at Facebook, at Twitter, at thatstack. If you want to write us, thatstackofbooks at gmail.com. You'd like to get some, some emails, yeah? I'd love to get some emails. I mean, do you have questions? Are there topics that you'd like us to talk about? Books that you'd like, uh, different areas that you'd like us to suggest some books? Group think about what would be good books? Yeah, we'd love to get email. Here we're going to do some group thinking. That stack of books at gmail.com. 
And you know, may I say thank you to Sarah and those guys for letting us come to the Bryant Corner Cafe yet again to sit here and quietly sip our coffees and eat and talk about books. So thank you all.